Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Alex Pearson in for Roy Green. He, of course, will be back with you next weekend. Let's get started on, on, I think, the focus of the day. And you ask yourself, you know, where were you 15 years ago? There are, there are those moments in history that really do stop us in our tracks, you know, those moments where you just never forget where you were. And, and I got to say, it's hard to believe it's been 15 years since 2,996 were killed and another 6,000 injured. It's the day, I think, collectively in the West anyway, that we learned what terror is and that we are no longer immune to it. And, of course, 26 Canadians were killed that day. 48-year-old Ken Baznicki was one of them. He was on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center. He was visiting on business that day. And since then, his wife Maureen has remembered her husband Ken by doing things like lobbying for legislation that would allow Canadians to sue the countries that supported and and led to the terror attacks like 9-11. But she's also helped organize The Canadian Day of Service, it's in partnership with Wounded Warriors, and they've put together a very special commemorative service, which was unveiled today in Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, Gander, as you recall, became the epicenter. That's the day, remember, 7,000 stranded 9-11 travelers ended up. And of course, as we do here in Canada, they open their hearts to help. And for that, the city of New York sent a one-meter piece of steel beam from the South Tower this week. And it's all to say thank you and to help commemorate this 15th anniversary. So it will be placed at the airport where those 39 planes landed. And today in Gander, folks including Maureen Baznicki and her daughter Erica, they they gathered at Gander to pay tribute to the loved ones and thank Gander for all its kindness. Scott Maxwell is the executive director of Wounded Warriors. He is in Gander and worked with Maureen to put this together, and he joins us now. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining us. Happy to be on the show. Thank you. So tell me about this special ceremony that really uh, you know, took par- part earlier today uh, in Gander. How, what was the mood of it like? And paint a picture, if you will, for our listeners. Yeah, well, very powerful, obviously. A whole bunch of ordinary people got together in these communities in Gander and the surrounding area to do extraordinary things for our American neighbors that day. And so we paid tribute to that this morning. There's a wonderful uh, tour of gratitude that's been set up by uh, the World Trade Center Memorial Foundation, New York Police, New York Fire, and they're here. They've been here for the last couple of days. They led a service to thank Canada and the Canadians who lost their lives this morning. And then we had another service at Appleton, just a little bit south of Gander, at 11. Uh, they received a piece of the North Tower uh, service ten years, uh, five years ago, marking the 10th anniversary. And then just now, I'm just stepped out. We're just concluding the the, uh, the main service, uh, commemorating the, the attacks and the anniversary. And, and really, 
not only talking about the um, you know the, the sad the reality of what happened 15 years ago, but but also and equally as important the gratitude in the sense of extreme graciousness, care, and compassion that that, that presented itself in the face of of terror. Mm-hmm. I bring uh, Maureen up and Erica because I met them in those mm-hmm. days after 9/11 when people were scared, people were still in a state of shock, and I remember being in their home, uh, you know, them telling me about Ken, and it was just such an emotional time, and I think. Mm-hmm. You know, she may have been more public in her mourning, uh, you know, at that time and certainly would go to New York for the ceremony to read the names out and be part of that ceremony. But I get the sense that, you know, she has taken her grief in a different direction, become a little bit more private and like so many others um, is now giving back. We've heard from so many people who either went into service wanted to become part of something to give back. And she has been a huge part, I think, of how we, uh, you know, celebrate and remember those lost on this day. Absolutely. You think of the National Day of Service in Canada, September 11th each year. That's a direct result of Maureen Basnicki. She uh, is a big supporter of Wounded Warriors Canada and approached me after an interview I did some years ago uh, wanting to get involved more to talk about the impacts, of course, that we all sometimes can forget that as a result of uh, September 11, 2001, 40,000 Canadian Armed Forces members uh, fought in Afghanistan, 158 paid the ultimate sacrifice, and thousands are living today across the country with those injuries sustained uh, in their service to Canada. So a lot has happened, and there's been a huge impact. And, of course, Marine uh, coming to partner with us to come to Gander and, and help organize these events again is, is simply instrumental in to, in to ensure, first and foremost, that we always remember not only the evil of that morning, but, but equally as important, the, the outpouring of support, the generosity, and the, and the great shining human spirit that, can, that presents itself often in the face of tragedy. Yeah, certainly Gander um, really put the face of, of just how giving Canadians are and how caring they are, because this did really touch us, um, you know, so very deeply on that day. I certainly watched the ceremonies this morning with my son. He's way too young to understand what's going on, but I want him to know that uh, on this day our lives forever changed. And I think it's important that people kind of step back and, and, and not forget. But do you get the sense, Scott, that folks are becoming too detached from it, that, you know, September 11th and what was really so unbelievable to watch it unfold, do you get the sense that the further we get away from it, the more people tend to just kind of forget? Well, I, I, you know, it's tough to say. I hope not. When, you, when you're here and you're at these events, you certainly don't believe that could be the case. I mean, the education component is huge. The, the, our American friends from New York who came up to be part of this from the police and fire with toured schools here in the Gander and around surrounding area and the, and the youth at the services this morning and the youth that are here today certainly leads you to think that it's not the case. But obviously Canada is a huge country. And what we're going to hope to do with the National Day of Service component of September 11th is, 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 is go to different communities each year and uh, pay our respects to men and women of uniform service in Canada uh, with a focus, of course, on the attacks of September 11th. So there's, there's things we can do better and, and do more of as a country. And I think that what we're seeing here is just is witness of that. And it keeps everything uh, alive and it generates discussion about what the impacts were, what followed. Mm-hmm. and how we can continue to remember. So we're going to do our part, the best of our ability at Wind Warriors Canada, working with people like Maureen and communities across the country that want to be involved and want to show our men and women uniform first responders uh, about how much we care and do appreciate their service each and every day. 
Yeah. I mean, look, I was a young reporter when this happened and being in the thick of it, uh, as you saw people in the airport, you know, terrified uh, that their loved ones were caught in the towers, the, just the absolute sheer chaos. Or, of course, going to all the funerals of those Canadians killed. You, you, you know, I was able to get a firsthand sense of just this, the sadness uh, of that. Um, so I remember a lot about that. But I, I do wonder if the younger generations just kind of are... You know, a little bit uh, immune uh, to the well, real. I, mean, I, I just think lives. we got to do a, we got to do our part yeah. as a whole, as a nation, educationally, uh, publicly. We got to ensure that this is part of the conversation at all times. It, it definitely, obviously, should be part of the conversation. The impacts on everything, so many things we do in life, have been profound as a result of that morning. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just think that there's work that still needs to be done in that regard. And like I say, I think having a National Day of Service with much more attention and focus placed on it every 12 months will help. And by changing and taking a, a National Day of Service events to different communities, like think of Fort McMurray, for example, yeah. and just what, what has happened there this year, that would be a great place, for example, to have National Day of Service 2017. Or There's lots we can do to go and commemorate. Um, and of course, you don't have to be in Gander to show how much Canadians care about our what happened there, how much they support our American neighbors and, and our men and women uniforming here and, and in the United States and around the world. So there's lots that we can do. We're going to we're prepared to do more as an organization. That's why we're here. That's why we were proud to co-host the events with the town of Gander. And uh, it, it's all in, in part, of course, to not only pay our respects and remember, but education and awareness is just as important long term. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Finally, we've got uh, America's former favorite dad getting a court date. And this surprised me. This is after, you know, years of accusations and a whole lot of denial. But yeah, Bill Cosby going on trial, I think uh, expected in the spring. He faces three counts of aggravated indecent assault in connection with a case that dates all the way back to 2004. And that is the employee uh, of a Temple University. And she's a Canadian woman. Her name, Andrea Constant. And the allegation is that she went to Cosby's Philadelphia home, that he allegedly drugged and incapacitated her, and that she was unable to consent, consent to sex. So this is the first charge to come out and the first case to go forward. I should mention more than 50 women have come forward claiming that Cosby sexually assaulted them over four decades. And this is the only, unless a case pops up, that occurred outside the statute of limitation. So you have to ask, you know, can Cosby get a fair trial after all this time? And why not settle it as he has done with so many others? Well, let's talk to the woman who I think we should give a lot of credit to for probably getting this case before a court. Because before, you know, she started speaking up, I'm not sure it would have gotten this kind of attention, likely because no one would have believed it. Gloria Allred joins me now. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I should point out that you're not the lawyer specifically for the woman in this case, but certainly um, you know better than anybody um, how how important and, you know, I think surprising that this case actually did get before a judge. Uh, yes, and that is because uh, the uh, prosecutor in the case believes that he has enough evidence uh, to go to trial and to attempt to persuade a jury that Mr. Cosby should be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course, uh, we'll have to see whether... Uh, whether he is correct or not, because one never knows what a jury is going to do. Mm-hmm. 
But certainly it's very important that, first, that uh, Mr. Cosby was indicted, and secondly, that there was a, well, the, that there was a preliminary hearing, I should say, uh, in which a court felt that there was sufficient evidence to require Mr. Cosby to stand trial, and uh, that now a trial date has been set for June 2017. I think it's going, of course, the defense is going to continue to make various arguments. Uh, for one, they want to try to change venue, meaning try to change it to a different location other than in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they uh, it's, it's reported they'd like to choose to, to send it to Philadelphia, uh, which would give them a different jury pool. And uh, my sense of it is they think it would be a more favorable jury pool than they would get in uh, Montgomery County, where it, it currently is. Uh, in addition, they're trying to suppress that phone call with Andrea's mother that Mr. Cosby had, uh, which uh, was recorded and which uh, the prosecutor would like to uh, be able to have an evidence at the trial uh, in which uh, Mr. Cosby is, uh, you know, there's a question as to whether he can, knew that he was being recorded. Uh, uh, you know, he apparently did speak with the mother uh, who was in Canada at the time? Um, the reports are that in Canada, it is not it, one part. Only one party need consent to the recording, so that even if the, if the mother knew that she was recording, uh, which apparently she did, and even if Mr. Cosby did not know or did not consent, and of course the prosecutor is arguing that he did know and did consent. But even if he didn't, that that phone call should be able to come into evidence. Mr. Cosby has various, you know, arguments as to why that should not take place. Um, and um, so those are some of the issues. Another issue is that on Tuesday of this week, Alex, the, the prosecutor made a motion. Uh, he wants to be able to put on testimony at the trial of other accusers, 13 other accusers of Mr. Cosby. The defense, of course, you know, uh, is going to object. Under Pennsylvania law, there is a legal notion, a legal co- doctrine and concept called prior bad acts. So that if there are other accusers who could testify to other prior bad acts by Mr. Cosby that essentially would be the same or similar, that would tend to prove a signature crime, that he had a pattern or practice of doing what is what he is alleged to have done to Andrea, uh, to others, that those accusers may be able to testify. Of course, the defense is going to object and try to exclude them. The defense is going to try to argue that that's more prejudicial than probative, you know, that it would tend to prejudice Mr. Cosby's right to a fair trial. Uh, and the prosecutor, of course, would argue that this will help to get to the truth. It's more probative. And so we'll have to wait and see what the judge decides on that as to the 13 other accusers. Um, There's going to have to be a hearing. There's no date for that hearing yet, but I do think that's going to be really important to the case. Certainly. You know, sex assault cases on both sides of the border are always very, very difficult if there's no uh, physical evidence. And I don't know if there's physical evidence in this case. I assume because of the, the, you know, given the time that's gone by, there wouldn't be. But it's always very difficult because it often becomes a he said, she said uh, situation. But, you know, without the testimony of those other women or that phone recording, it would be almost impossible, um, I think, to proceed, no? Well, 
I don't want to say that because, of course, Andrea's testimony, which she did not give at the preliminary hearing, she wasn't required to, but which she will give at the trial, that's evidence. Uh, if Mr. Cosby made any admissions on that phone call, uh, then that, and if those, that phone call can be admitted, that's also more evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the jury will have to decide the weight of any evidence after it's deemed admissible. And that's going to be something for the jury to decide. Uh, what other evidence there may be, we'll have to wait and see. Um, of course, he did enter into uh, what was supposed to be a confidential settlement with her. Mm-hmm. He did pay her, apparently, an amount of money. Uh, but that's not necessarily, you know, can be, from a legal point of view, construed as an admission. Well, the bottom line is we'll have to wait to see what other evidence there is and what the defenses are. Can the former testimony in other civil matters be brought into this? Is that what you're referring to with these other 13 women? Well, actually, with the other 13 women, and I don't, well, I'm not commenting on if I represent any of them Mm -hmm. or if I don't, but uh, I'm not aware of any other civil lawsuits that were filed against Mr. Cosby uh, in reference to any allegations that he drugged, sexually assaulted, or raped any other women. Um, But, um, you know, many accusers have gone public and have made statements. So I think uh, that's what's interesting. Certainly. Uh, Given his profile, uh, given the state of 24-7 media, social media, et cetera, the tabloid nature of of something, a case like this, can he get a fair trial? Well, you know, Mr. Cosby is going to argue that he can't get a fair trial because that's what high-profile defendants always argue. Uh, Matter of fact, this week, uh, his attorney singled me out to be attacking me, uh, which was kind of interesting because I wasn't even there. And as you point out, uh, I don't even represent the victim in the criminal case. But he, you know, they had some kind of strange allegation that this is all a racist, this is somehow a racist campaign against Mr. Cosby. Of course, I consider that a very des- desperate, if, if that's what he always got, is to try to attack me. Very pathetic. And, um, it, 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 and, of course, I represent a number of African-American women who have made allegations against Mr. Cosby. I think these African-American women, they deserve a voice. Uh, they deserve uh, representation. And, you know, he's going to fight uh, uh, to, you know, put on any defenses he's going to. And I will make sure that I am going to be protective of my clients and fight to make sure that they're treated fairly. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk a little bit uh, about, you know, whether the shine is coming off the Prime Minister's sunny ways. And if you want to jump into this conversation, you can. I always welcome all sorts of opinions. 416-870-6400. If you're on your uh, cell phone, you can just press star 640. Or, of course, across Canada, one eight 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 two two five talk That's 8255. And I ask the question because I think so far, Mr. Trudeau has captivated the world. You know, he's charming. He's had a pretty long honeymoon. The polls have him absolutely soaring in popularity. And, hey, Vanity Fair just naming him in their most stylish edition. So he's up there with the royals, with the president. But, I mean, let's be honest. 
He's got no competition. The opposition completely in disarray. Media still likes him. But, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've had, you know, bad news with the job numbers, worse export numbers. And and I talked about this dangerous peacekeeping mission that our troops are going to be going into. And it has some people raising their eyebrows in concern as to, you know, we're heading into some hard times and Charm's not going to deal with it. It's going to be time for Mr. Trudeau to make some very tough decisions and show some leadership. And this is when the question, you know, is he ready we're about to find out. Robert Waite is the managing director of Waite & Co., and he's also a columnist for the Huffington Post, which is where I picked up this notion of whether or not the sunny ways are darkening. Good to have you with us, Robert. Thank you, Alex. Good afternoon. Why Why would you say that uh, maybe the sunny ways are, are not going to be so sunny moving forward? Well, first of all, I think you're completely right. He's had uh, possibly the longest run of honeymoon in the history of North American politics. It's been 10 months plus, and, and all of the things you've said are true in terms of international acceptance, and, and certainly here at home, his poll numbers are high. But, um, as I said in my piece, uh, you know, with the chill of, of, of frost in September and October, uh, people are going to start paying attention to results, and uh, particularly the economy um, is a lingering issue. And, and despite a program that includes a lot of spending, a lot of infrastructure, uh, an enhanced child benefit, we just haven't seen any results in terms of the economy picking up. So that's his probably most vulnerable uh, area at the moment. Now, you come to this as a, a nonpartisan position. Me, on the other hand, people will say, ah, you're just a partisan hack. Okay, fine. Uh, but you come at this from a nonpartisan, uh, you know, way of thinking. And and I agreed with you on many things. I, I do think that he's going to have to make some very tough decisions. He's going to have to make decisions, I think, you know, pipelines. You know, yep. they're being held up. The The National Energy Board just had its hearings interrupted by a handful of activists. That That is almost unheard. It is unheard of. We didn't hear anything from Ottawa. Pipelines aren't being built, so we're not moving energy across this country and or out and exporting it. He's got to make decisions on this. And and I, I think given his popularity, this is the time he should do it because I think he could move people in support of that. Well, that's right. He has tremendous capital, uh, public goodwill uh, at his command if he uses it judiciously. And so that's what we'll be watching for. And it's not just the pipeline. So he's kicked a number, he and his staff have kicked a number of issues down the street, uh, which w- only works so long. So another one would be the decision on whether or not to provide federal aid to Bombardier. There's certainly a large segment of people who think that's a bad idea. But obviously there are people, particularly in Quebec, who think it's a fabulous idea. Canada Post. Canada Post uh, is still an unresolved issue uh, they made vague promises about restoring or at least looking at restoring door-to-door. Uh, if they're going to avoid Canada Post going into large deficits, uh, they need a solution. Now, if it's not door-to-door, maybe it's three days a week. None of those solutions are going to be popular. Um, you know, and there are other, other issues as well. They're all coming to the table because you can't put them off forever. No, you can't. I mean, the bottom line is something has to happen. I, I can only speak for what life is like in Ontario, but it's 
I, I get this overwhelming sense that people are actually struggling. The middle class that that the Liberal Party says they want to help, you know, energy costs are soaring. A lot of people got cut off from child benefits. It, jobs are, are 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 not great in this province right now. And, and I'm hearing from people that they're just struggling like they haven't in the past. That's true. One of the things that uh, benefits Trudeau tremendously, though, in my opinion, is that in comparison both to the past, Mr. Harper, who was a uh, arguably competent but not very warm individual, and looking south across the border, uh, looking at people like Donald Trump uh, and Hillary Clinton, uh, by comparison, and I have Americans tell me this all the time, you know, they would much rather have a, uh, a Trudeau at the helm than either of their two choices. So he's, in some regards, he's, he's a bit lucky in his timing. Uh, he's, he, He's had sunny days, um, but he's had lucky days as well. And I would argue they've had that for eight years, and a lot hasn't been done. And and a lot would say in that country that it's gone backwards. So they've had eight years, and I think that's why you're seeing such a hunger of of anger, and they're turning to someone like uh, Mr. Trump. Robert, stand by, because I want to bring John into this conversation. He joins us from Peterborough. You've got a comment or a question? Well, basically, uh, I think think Mr. Trudeau is is about as shallow as uh, as a brook and babbles as much as well. Um, he's gone back on his promise with the veterans, totally, by hiring uh, Mr. Harper's former lawyer on that. Uh, he's going to be deploying about 3,600 troops to different theaters, which is more than we had at one time in Afghanistan, if I'm right. What do you got to say about that? <laughs> Thanks for your call, John. And, and Robert, I think it's going to be an issue for him because the vets uh, during the last election, which I felt, and this is just my opinion, uh, I felt they were used as pawns in this fight. And they were promised a whole bunch from the Liberal government uh, that they would uh, you know, get treatments for PTSD, et cetera. They would be helped. And it's been a year now. And I think a lot of them are saying, you know, wh- what are you going to do for us? You said you would fix things. Right. So, so that certainly is an issue. Uh, you mentioned the peacekeeping, and I think that's a very relevant point because today's peacekeeping is not his father's peacekeeping. Uh, the blue, you know, the blue and white, and the UN flag are just not respected uh, the way they used to be. The people that they're dealing with don't respect any authority, as we've seen in the Middle East and in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So you know, he's got to be prepared for peacekeeping to be a much tougher uh, exercise and you know, with the potential of, of loss of life. And, and loss of life, uh, you know, it will be something he will have to deal with and, and uh, explain to the Canadian people. Well, certainly, but they, you know, they they are clearly determined to get a seat at the Security Council, and I'm not sure why, because as you say, I mean, the United uh, United Nations, uh, to me, is just not worth making a deal with, given some of the people they've got at the table. Uh, you know, not the nicest of uh, folks. So we, why we would fight to, to you know, put ourselves in there more, uh, I'm not think, sure is in our best interest. Yeah, I think part of it is uh, they. They perceive that the conservatives failed to get a seat, and they're trying to you know, show that they're better at this than the conservatives. But I'm not sure that should be a controlling or compelling reason for seeking that seat. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
Not the happiest chat to have, but it is, I think, an important conversation. And I'm sure some of you will want to weigh in on this, and I welcome that. Uh, 416-870-6400 or star 640 on your cell. Of course, toll-free, 1-888-225-TALK. But I want to ask the question, those with mental illness, should they be eligible for doctor-assisted suicide? Or is this the start of what I call a slippery slope? Um, Right now, under current legislation that went through, I think it was past June, only those 19 and older who have end-of-life illnesses, I think, Lou Gehrig's would be one, can get legally, get access to doctor-assisted death. But what happens if you have, you know, a number of debilitating and painful mental illnesses that are unbearable? Should you then have access to doctor-assisted death? A 26-year-old Windsor man says yes, and he has joined uh, Charter Challengers thinking about it to strike down the current law, saying it is just simply too restrictive. So what is the balance here? Do we help those suffering with things like mental illness or protect those who we would maybe call vulnerable? For my next guest, it is going to happen either way because he's going to refuse living with this pain. His name, Adam Meyer Clayton, and he joins us out of Windsor. Good to have you, sir. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for uh, having this conversation, which I think makes some people uncomfortable, but I think, you know, it's it's out there. We've got doctor-assisted suicide in this country, so we may as well have this conversation. But I want you to explain to me, because you say you have several mental illnesses, What do you ha- what do you have? What kind of symptoms? What's your day like? Okay. So my formal diagnoses are uh, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, depersonalization disorder, and then all of that kind all of that concoction synergistically works to generate an incredibly aggressive amount of what is known as psychogenic or somatoform pain. So for those who don't know the intricacies of those illnesses, major depression isn't something where you just kind of have negative thoughts or like something bad in your life happens and you're sad for a week or a few months or whatever. It is something that can be neurobiologically built into your brain and your entire life is going to be very sad, whether you like it or not. And unfortunately, I am one of those people. And looking back at the history of my life, and the more I say the DSM, which is the uh, the big, large book that psychiatrists and mental health practitioners use to diagnose patients, I started realizing, hey, so when I was 15 and 16 years old, and I, I didn't have this full-blown depression, but I had this kind of like more moderate depression, more lax depression. That's actually called anhedonia. And I've been experiencing that since I was 15 or 16. So today, how I live pretty much, to give some general context, is knowing I had this interview at 3.30, I haven't actually spoken more than about 10 minutes throughout the past four hours. And the reason being is because if I had chosen to talk and be kind of a normal person, talk with my friends, my family, maybe talk about the Blue Jays-Red Sox game or whatever's going on geopolitically, the pain 
would grow and grow and grow and grow so bad to the point that I probably wouldn't have been able to speak with you at all. The pain, I live in chronic pain, and the pain as covered in my YouTube channel, for those who want a more in-depth understanding of, of my actual medical condition, because you're surely not going to understand it completely over 15 minutes. But what happens is, in short, cognition, a.k.a. brain activity, causes pain to pulsate and stimulate my body. So my body, anytime I have to read something or talk to someone such as yourself or go to a doctor's appointment, etc., this little 15-minute conversation with you is going to blast me with very aggressive pain for about two, two and a half hours later. After this interview, I'm actually going to go to the gym just to kind of get through that time as fast as possible. So I live in chronic physical pain. It's characterized as a mental illness because there isn't what's known as an identifiable pathology, which means if I show up at a doctor's, they're going to say, well, he seems okay. He but seems it's in okay. his head. They'll say it's in his head. You don't show physical marks. Ex ex exactly. And they'll say, hey, you know, it's psychosomatic, mm -hmm. which typically means it's in his head. But the point is, Right now, there's just this kind of issue within the the medical uh, the medical field where we're starting to realize that not all of these patients are in their own heads. Surely, some of them are. For example, there are people who obsess about like if they feel like a small little psychosomatic pain in their head, they'll obsess on it over and over until they truly believe they have a brain tumor. That's very common in health anxiety. And psychosomatic pain to that level exists. But there are other people such as myself. I don't obsess about anything. I could care less about any of these idiotic little obsessions. I've done so much therapy. I understand all of these things. It's not, I'm not in my own head. This is an organic illness that we simply don't understand. Are there any medications? Is there any kind of treatment that you do get that makes it livable or, or, or something that you can live with? Livable? Absolutely not. As soon as I wake up in the day, I take, um, I won't talk about the dosages because they don't really matter at this point, but I take gabapentin, I take uh, benzodiazepine called Ativan, I take an SSRI called Acetylopram, which is branded as Lexapro, and then I'm also on something called Tegretol or Carbamazepine. The people listening are probably like, hmm, that sounds like a lot of stuff. It's, I think it's as soon as I wake up, it's nine, nine pharmaceutical pills as soon as I wake up. And what I will say is those nine pills took me out of a state where I literally was bedridden. I couldn't move. My depression was so bad. I had something called psychomotor retardation, which means you actually can't like move and control your own body. You're literally bedridden. I was bedridden for months and months. I can now get to the gym, get to the bank. But in terms of, has it helped me in terms of pain mitigation? I'd say it's helped a whopping 4 to 6% cumulatively. So you're 26. You don't really live. You just kind of exist. Absolutely. That's exactly how I'd characterize it. Yeah. And so you look at it and you say, I would rather die and that you will die instead of living like, like you are, existing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't be more confident and forward about it. I mean, 
I have, frankly, the reason I've been pushing for more media uh, or to get a better profile by the media is because this is a serious thing. A lot of people have been seeing my material, reaching out to me, asking what they can do, etc. This is an issue that's only going to grow and grow as, you know, modern society advances and we get further in time. And like I like anything in history, I mean, it's best to tackle these things as early on as possible, in my opinion. Are you a, are you in in a I don't know how to word this without being trite, but I, are you unique in this or are there many others that suffer these kinds of mental illnesses? I mean, I I know that there are a lot of people that have mental illnesses, but are you in a unique category? Absolutely. I would say the 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 way I phrase it is I am a, a very exotic case. I have dealt with what you need to understand is and I'm sure the listeners listening are thinking, hmm, you know, this guy sounds kind of like normalish in, in the way in which he articulates himself. You need to understand that before all, before, like, I have had anxiety and issues since I was five, but it was what most people would call manageable. Before it hit that level where it was like, oh my Lord, this is insane, you need to understand I was a straight A student. I had very, very large ambitions. I was a uh, very, very social person, nightclub bartender in a, in a, you know, university fraternity, I guess you could say the definition of, of social normalcy. And when I realized my life was in complete jeopardy, being the academic that I am, I did so much research. I went across all the boards, depersonalizationselfhelp.com. I went through Reddit subreddits. I went through Psych Zone, Anxiety Zone, Psych Central, all these, all these web forums to see who had similar things. And I found a very, very rare few of cases of people who had symptoms in terms of the somatoform pain that were as debilitating as mine. But I mean very few in cases of like literally thousands. And I've, I've spoken directly with literally thousands of people across these forums. When I go to the support groups that are localized, such as, you know, the, the groups like the OCD group in Ottawa that I used to go to or the some of the things I've done in Windsor, no one can even relate to the magnitude of the physical symptoms I endure. It's literally perpetual torture. I don't Despite what a psychiatrist may want to say, they might want to categorize me as a psychiatric case, I feel that it's really more physical than... I understand there's a psychiatric... There's a, what I say is it's neurobiological. It's my brain causing this. And I look at it as an organic physical illness. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about State of the Union. I've been reading a little bit about uh, what's been going on lately and what we're starting to see, you know, declining memberships, you know, something that is, is causing some to say, what, what is the relevancy of today's unions? Now, if you're a public sector union, you likely feel pretty good. Memberships are strong. 75% is what you sit at. The government's uh, troughs, I guess, are full and willing to pay. So it's, it's good if you're in a public sector, but private sector unions, well, no, a bit of a different story. According to a new study by the Fraser Institute, memberships have dropped to 14% from 21. So we're starting to see a bit of a shift occur in the two sides. It looks as though they're becoming polarized. Maybe it's the lousy job numbers in the manufacturing sector, which is a contribution. 
but I think it's it's becoming more and more difficult for private unions to compete, especially when the public sector unions never have to feel the pain. And they seemingly only get more powerful, and some would say at the cost of the taxpayer. And so why do I bring this up? Because five of every Canadians fall into one of these categories, and now many are saying there's absolutely nothing fair about today's unions, which essentially were set up to make sure workers were treated fairly. Smokey Thomas, president of OpsU, joins me now. Where am I wrong, Smokey? Good to have you with us. How are you? How are you doing? Good, good. Where am I wrong? Well, I mean, if you the question of uh, are unions still relevant, I would say actually that uh, unions are needed now more than ever. Um, it's a bit of a, a misnomer to say that public sector, all public sector workers, uh, you know, I always get here, you know, they got gold-plated pensions and job security for life. Well, that, that that's not exactly the case. Um, uh, the average member in ops who that has a pension, right? Because not all my members have pensions. Uh, they'll live on twenty-two thousand dollars a year. That's not exactly gold-plated. There are people that work for the government that do make, you know, the hundred thousand dollar plus uh, category. They do. Uh, they have much better pensions. But most of my mem- the average wage in my membership is about forty-two thousand a year. So we're not. You know, we have some workers that make. In the 90 to 100 range, but they got university degrees, sometimes two degrees, um, sometimes three. Uh, so they're, they've certainly invested in, in their education to, to do the work that they're doing. But workers are, I think, uh, well, I'd say this, not every workplace needs a union. And well, a lot of them I, can't afford it. Small businesses certainly can't afford it. Well, even ones that could, not everyone needs a union. When we get a phone call and somebody says, why do you want to join a union? Like we, we always ask, why did you want to join a union? And they rarely ever say because the money is lousy. What they say is, oh, our boss is horrible, harasses us, you know, bullies us, treats us like dirt beneath their feet. So it's more about respect and being treated better is why most, most workers are organized. And, that, and that's almost always the case. Sometimes it's about money because they're... Uh, in a transfer payment agency that's $10 an hour behind another transfer payment agency, but the boss is on the sunshine list, that kind of stuff. But So we're relevant in that sense in the public sector, try to bring in a level playing field. But but mostly it's about being treated with fairness. And I always say a good boss has this going for them. They're fair, firm, and friendly. And a union brings that to the table. I hear people say today, the Fraser Institute, for example, has said repeatedly, you know, uh, workers are covered by, there's enough in labor law to make a worker feel secure. Well, maybe if you can afford a lawyer. So well, look, I, I've not been part of a union. I've been a part of a union, and I've not been part of a union, and I've always been treated very well. Yeah, but not all, not everybody is, Alex. Well, no, but so, that doesn't mean there's no, no hard knocks. I mean, you know, oh. but I've never needed a pricey lawyer. I've just think, I, I think for a lot of people, especially in the private sector, they would say, you know, we've got really good labor laws in this country, and they may not be as relevant, you know, in a country like Canada. Well, but to enforce those labor laws here in Canada, right, you would have to go use the law, and that requires a lawyer. Not too many people understand the law. The lawyers, you know, two to three to four hundred dollars an hour, whereas the union dues might be five, six hundred a year. And you get representation a lot cheaper than you would with a lawyer. All I'm saying is that some people need a union. Sure. Okay, so let me ask you, what are the big challenges then facing the private sector unions that the public sector simply isn't going through? Uh, Well, yes, and private private sector unions took a huge hit in the downturn. 
and with the loss of manufacturing. But manufacturing job losses, Alex, uh, 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 account for about half the job losses in, in the private sector. Um, technology, right? Artificial intelligence accounts for the other half. So there's two things to here really to look at is one is our, so they've lost jobs to you know to Mexico, to Bangladesh, mm-hmm. to China, to Japan, uh, south interior of the United States, although they're now losing jobs to other countries. So that has had a big effect and a big hit. But but also technology is eliminating technology is eliminating jobs in the government. Jobs that used to be done by people are now done by computers. Well, I think so, that that affects every uh, area. Everybody, yes. Yeah. But one of the relevance even the private sector is I think they're on the rebound. Manufacturing is actually kind of coming back up a bit in Canada. And again, workers won't join unions unless they think they need one. So unions got to sell themselves to the workers. You you need to when we go out we. We, we say, here's what we can do for you, right, if you join our union. And most of the time they join, not always. Sometimes they say, well, you know what, uh, maybe that's not exactly for us. So, But I'd I just say that unions are still relevant. Um, and we need unions now more than ever. The rise, and everybody says, oh, you don't need a union. Well, then if we didn't need a union, why is precarious work on the on the upswing? More and more jobs are, are uh, uh, casual, called in, part-time. Uh, the gender wage gap is go- growing instead of getting uh, shrinking, and and in re- jurisdictions where unions are, you know, there's high union density, there's more equality. Women make more, and and so there's many things that unions fight for other than just you know a contract, and that, that's our bread and butter is organize, uh, you know, negotiate and enforce. But we also fight for things like pay equity. Uh, it's unions that got pay equity. It's unions that got maternity leave for women. It was the Canadian Union Postal Workers went all the way to Supreme Court of Canada to win the right for a woman to have not have to quit her job. Sure. I can remember my mom quitting her job because she got pregnant. So, but I think I think Smokey that a lot of folks look at let's say the public service unions and say you know what they're they're elite now they they're out of touch you know they get these huge pensions m- you know amazing yeah. benefits job security it's just not realistic today and I'm not picking on you because you know I like you uh, yeah. what would you say to that well I would say that we're we're suffering not to the same extent that private sectors but. Uh, 30% of the, my membership, 30 to 35%, are part-time call-in. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a, a growing use of part-time workers in the public sector as well. And we, what we've seen is there, there has been shrinkage in, in, uh, in my, like in the Ontario Public Service, for example, keeps shrinking. But we've been able to go and organize in other, other areas in the broader public sector, transfer payment agency. So we're, we're being hit by by the you know the number of part-time workers the colleges are now 60% part-time whereas they used to be like 10% part-time and uh, they don't make uh, no job security they got to go contract after contract after contract so we're fighting those same things that private sector unions are fighting it just hasn't hit us in in, in the large numbers that it has uh, again to them right and of course in terms of cuts so we're 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 facing the same sort of issues uh, we're lucky. Uh, we're extreme. If you got a public sector job today and you're full time, you are very lucky. And I think the vast majority of public sector workers realize that. And I realize that uh, we're lucky to. I'm lucky to be the president of a union that has a reasonably steady workforce, reasonably steady membership. But we're constantly seeing more and more jobs either not replaced or replaced with part time, reduced hours, 
and and but with the workers expected to do the same amount of work that a full-timer did so we face the same issues and that's why one of the reasons i think unions are still relevant today working people need a collective voice so that they can fight what i call bad bosses globalization corporatization that they can take this kind of stuff on to you know sort of tackle that growing uh, income inequality that we've seen on the rise and most you know almost everybody admits that income inequality is an issue and the middle middle class is shrinking so and i always say to business leaders uh, you know well who's going to buy our fridge or a stove or a car or take a vacation if you just keep chipping away at jobs and there's not enough good jobs you can't live a full-time life on a part-time job so we fight for full-time good jobs right we really do and we but we're smart enough to recognize that not every job is a full-time job and not everybody wants a full-time job. Some people prefer part-time. Uh, that's all they want to work. So we try and strike that balance, Alex, and, and what we believe is, uh, and at least an ops to our approach mm-hmm. to public policy, and uh, and you know coming up trying to you know put forward some ideas that would be innovative and creative solutions to some thorny issues that uh, budget issues and things like that. So. Uh, but our, I, I shudder to think of where my members would be, particularly in the broader public sector and the colleges, if they didn't have a union to fight for them. They'd be in terrible shape. Now yeah, they'd be just like me, fighting the good fight every day. Smokey, on that note, i got to let you go. All right. Thanks, Smokey. That is Smokey Tom, uh, Thomas, who I have dealt with a lot in the past. He's with the uh, Ontario uh, OPSU. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine Swift comes in on the other side of this conversation, and we've got some calls. I do see you. I'll ask you to stand by patiently as I get Catherine's take. Uh, you know, Smokey obviously touting the uh, the needs of the unions and that they are more relevant today than they were. And you say what, Catherine? Well, I listened to your interview with Smokey just out of interest. And I, I, of all the union leaders that I've dealt with over the years, and there are many, he's one of the least dishonest. <laughs> yeah, he, no, I like Smokey. to give him that. No, no, I'll totally give him yeah. that. He's, But still... You know, some of the stuff, all this stuff about inequality increasing, that is not true in Canada. It is true in the U.S., and I think we read the headlines so often from the U.S. that we think it's true here. You know, so a lot of his, you know, case was frankly not really based on fact. But but that being said, Alex, uh, you know, I've had a long reputation as someone who has had problems with unions. And to tell you the truth, and this is something Smokey didn't mention, Unions in Canada are the most privileged in the world in terms of the law, the legal uh, framework that enables them when people are forced to pay dues, they have no control over how those dues are spent. And we've seen in a bunch of recent elections, last year's federal election, uh, Ontario election, the Alberta election uh, that elected the NDP, etc., public sector unions in particular spending millions and millions of their members' dollars without the approval of those members. Frankly, if if unions were like every other organization, and as you know, I headed up a business group for many years in in Canada, and our dues were voluntary. If union dues were voluntary, I'd say knock yourself out. Go and earn your keep, make your case, or not, you know, as everybody else has to do. But unions in Canada are immensely privileged, and the problem we have today, and and you were alluding to it in in some of your comments with Smokey there, is that... They, frankly, are protecting the privilege now. They are no longer representing. You know, 100 years ago, I totally agree. Unions were necessary, and they represented people that had no, you know, power or influence in the workplace. Now, 60% of Canadian union members work 
for government. Yeah, I mean, look when you're when you're it's, when your neighbor's a bus driver. Around. Yeah, when you're when your neighbor's a bus driver and they're retired at 55, you got to ask a few questions. I mean, I know I'm going to work till I'm 110. Shall I make it that long? But I do think that there's this. I think there's just a bit too much power uh, when we talk about the public service uh, unions in this country. That it's there's a huge imbalance here. There, there is a massive imbalance. And again, we know from a ton of research, there's been it's tons of research done by many, many organizations uh, over the years that shows your average public sector worker, if you factor in pensions, that early retirement you were mentioning there, uh, better holidays and all that kind of jazz, fewer hours worked per week, by the way, they tend to make on average 40% more, 40% more than the same job would pay in the private sector. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what demolished Detroit, Greece, Venezuela, you know, on and on and on and on. This is not a winning proposition for our economy or our society. And I have no, listen, I have no problem. You know, government people should totally be paid fairly and, and uh, compensated well and all that jazz. But when it gets so out of sync uh, and when we have public sector unions influencing elections to the extent that they you know, dominate the messaging out there because they got so much money because those forced dues mean they got money flowing in whether mm-hmm. they earned it or not. And, and, you know, people vote accordingly. Then we have governments, and, and, and any government, I, I would say right now in particular, our federal government, our Ontario government, our Alberta government are all basically kowtowing to public sector unions. Public sector, the public sector workforce is 20% of the population in Canada. When they are inordinately uh, influential with any government, then 80% of Canadians are getting sold down the river. Let's bring Stephanie into this conversation because, Stephanie, you've been so patient waiting on the line. But you see the good and bad. Hello? Hey, Stephanie. Hi. I thought I'd call in um, because I work in a hospital and we are not unionized. But what we have seen is a lot of people come from the unionized hospitals because they can't get vacation because people have more seniority than them. Yeah, it's interesting. Thanks, Stephanie, for that. And, Catherine, I think that is that is a bit of a problem that does happen. You get unions that protect the more senior, senior people, which really holds back those who want to move forward or have the same uh, privileges. Well, this, this is another impact of the inordinate high level of unionization in the public sector, it, which is that unions don't, People are not rewarded on the basis of competence, hard work, or whatever. They're rewarded for seniority. So in other words, the fairly you know, ineffective employee who nevertheless has seniority gets preference over the person that's working hard, really trying to make a go of it. And when I look at public services here when, in Ontario, where I live, it, we had a report come out about a week ago, and you and I talked about it, Alex, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that showed that 50% of, of grade 6 students were achieving um, mass uh, competency outcomes. I believe that the unionization and the fact that unions promote seniority over competence and skills means that our public services are being terribly eroded in terms of their quality. So this has a very, very pervasive effect, unfortunately, in so many respects. And I mean, something smoky there, you know, didn't really remark upon. In, In the private sector, you have to compete. If you're not you know, making making a living if you're not contributing, then you're either going to lose your job or that business is going to be in trouble and everybody loses their job. But in the public sector, there's no competition. And back in the 1940s, you probably recall, the well, I was, I was, I'm not quite that old there. Government yeah. was viewed as 
not possible. And I think now we maybe see why. Let me give Mark a quick, you got 20 seconds, Mark. You got a comment for uh, Catherine, a comment? Yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned Venezuela and these countries are complete disasters right now. Canada, I tell you, is about 10 years far from being behind that. I mean, I think it's union, union or not, I'm a trucker out in BC, and I tell you, people in Alberta are hurting mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. And I think it's epic, the, the policies this government is bringing in that is shutting down this economy nationally is a complete joke, and it's a disaster. It's a disaster Mark- on epic levels. Epic level. Uh, Mark, thank you. I'm glad I gave you the time because, Catherine, I think, you know, I've got like 10 seconds left. I think he kind of kind of dots the eye there. Yeah. Well, the bottom line is whenever you have, frankly, incompetence rewarded over competence, when you have people protecting their turf, which is what the public sector unions do now at the expense of the yeah. majority of Canadians, we have a broken system and something got, something's got to give. <laughs> yeah. It's generally the middle class and the working people. That's Catherine, right. thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. But like, you know, a lot of you, I think you're probably chilling today, watching a bit of football. No doubt you've got your earpiece listening to me. But uh, let's talk about a movement that seems to be growing. And of course, I'm talking about the 49er quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, you know, kneeling during the national anthem. Then we saw female soccer player Megan Rapinoe. She said she wanted to get on her knee and did so in support and then of course you had the Denver Bronco Brandon Marshall got on his knee in the NFL opener he's not against the American flag against social injustice so you know it's getting all sorts of reaction but it seems to be growing you know the Seattle Seahawks planning a demonstration of unity today at their game to honor the country and flag I'm just saying I mean I'm sure all the football games are starting and I don't know what's happened because I'm in here but Today's not a good day to do it. I just wouldn't do it today. Just my advice. Uh, but interesting, you know, I, I, was, I was seeing that the coach of the USA's hockey team told his players that if any of them, any of them, sat during the anthem, they could sit on that bench and not move. So I know some of you will argue that we should not be even playing the anthem at sporting events, citing that uh, folks just don't pay attention, so why bother? But, I, you know, as long as we are playing it, I, I don't know. Should players be allowed to protest it? Or is it out of bounds? Does it turn you off? If you've got, I'd love your, your input on this. 416-870-6400 or star 640 on your cell. Of course, toll free one eight 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 two two five. talk How do you see this? Are you okay with this movement growing? Because it is actually becoming part of the conversation of the game. They're actually doing analysis on it. People are like talking about it kind of a lot now and it's starting to happen more and more and then you've got the players that do it and then you've got the players that don't so you're you know these people they get angry and ugh. anyway let's bring scott radley into the conversation he is of course a sports columnist for the spectator he's also host of the scott radley show on am 900 chml good to have you sir alex great to be here thanks I kind of thought that this would be a one-off i thought colin kaepernick would do it and then you know everyone would kind of move back from it but you know, this is a movement that's growing, not just for those who want to kneel and support, but now you're seeing teams who are saying, eh, 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 look, we're going to show you like what the, what the Seahawks are doing t- uh, today. And the Dolphins, the four of the guys on the Dolphins took a knee today against the Seahawks. And really? Here's the thing, yeah, here's the thing about it. That, that, um, I, fa- I mean, personally, I hate it. Personally, I think it's grossly disrespectful. However, 
the point of this is broader than that. The point of this is, I believe, and I think most people do, even though they may disagree with this, they believe wholeheartedly in the concept of free expression. And so we say free speech, free expression. That's what we, that's what our, that's what we fought wars for, mm-hmm. that we could have that right to free expression. So while I hate what you're doing, mm-hmm. I believe that you have the right to do it. The difficult part, Alex, is this. We seem to be picking and choosing what free expression we want to allow. And so I did a thing on my show this week. I went through this list of things, and they were all from the States, mind you, but this list of things where teachers in schools, governments, other people were saying, no, you can't do that. There was a kid who was quietly reading his Bible on school property. You can't do that. That's mixing church and state. That's that's not your right to do that. We had kids who were meeting to pray in a room that wasn't being used with no teacher, just in an empty room. Well, you can't do that. And so I, I argue vigorously that you should have the right to be Colin Kaepernick, to be the guys in the Dolphins. I disagree with what they're doing, but I argue for the right to do it. But if you're going to say you have the right to do that, and if everyone's going to say, yeah, that's okay, we have to broaden it and say, yeah, all free expression then, as long as it's not the, you know, the usual example of yelling fire in a crowded theater, as long as it's just free expression and your expression of your beliefs or your thoughts or whatever, you know, free expression is not a one-way street. So we can't pick and choose the parts of it that we want to say, that's okay, that's not okay. If you want to say you can do it, it's got to be very broad. And right now we're having a hard time coming up with the thing that would say, yeah, you can do everything. We just, we just want to listen to what we think, and we, don't want, we want to shut down the people who say what we don't like. Well, look, you do have the freedom to do that, but you better be willing and prepared for the blowback. And that's, you know, Absolutely. if if Colin Kaepernick is going to is going to kneel, then he's going to have to, you know, deal with possibly losing endorsement deals, getting cut from yep. the team. Um, but, you know, it, it's becoming, you know, more than the sport where you're no longer watching the sport. Now it's turning into a big debate. And I think a lot, you know, a lot of folks forget that Muhammad Ali, he, he was quite an activist. He was an athlete that everyone loved and in death remembered him as a hero. But of course, he, he was despised for his actions when he when he dodged the draft. And, and it's only now we look at him as a hero. But back then, not so much. Well, I'll tell you another thing that's very interesting about what's going on today with the NFL. The NFL has already made it clear that they intend to to, to met, meet out no punishment to anybody who takes a knee. Or there was a guy in the in the um, Kansas City Chiefs game today. All the players linked arms, and he did the uh, fist up in the air, uh, Carlos Rogers power salute kind of thing at the end of the line. The NFL says, you know, it's your choice. It's your choice how you want to do this because you're free to do what you want to do. However, a number of players have intended to wear cleats, to wear shoes. Yeah that had images of 9-11 on it to honor the firefighters, the police officers, the first responders. The NFL says, if you do that, you will be fine. And this is where the NFL now finds itself in a mess, because how can you possibly say that we are going to fight for, we're going to say you can do what you want to, in many people's eyes, disrespect the people who, who, I mean, especially today, especially today with it being 9-11. That the perception is you're going to allow them to disrespect the police officers and the firefighters and those people who died in 9-11. But if you want to honor them, no, 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 no. That comes with a fine. You can't do that in our league. That, well, now we get into a really ugly and a really awkward situation, which is exactly what I was talking about before. If you're going to have free speech, if you're going to have free expression, it has to go 
both ways. Yeah, you can't suck and blow, which is what the NFL is doing. But I'll I'll tell you that they're doing that because they don't want to uh, be accused of being racist. Exactly. Whereas they don't exactly. care if they're, you know, anti-American, I guess, on the other side. No, but it, it's an absolute fear. I mean, this is, I, I know you have a brief window today. This is one we could do for eight hours. It is a thing we have in our society now where we are terrified of being called racist, sexist, homophobic, to the point where we are afraid to say anything, even potentially that dances along the edge of something that anybody could misconstrue as anything of those categories. Because, holy cow, if you have someone publicly label you racist, that's, that's for a lot of people, that's a professional death sentence. The last thing the NFL wants especially with a large number of African-American players, is to be told, you're a racist league. So they would, you're right, they will bend over in contortions to not look, quote, quote, racist. But the other stuff, well, you know, we can take a stand against that. We can't have people wearing odd uniforms or things on their uniforms because who's going to say you're, you're what, you're anti-fashion? You're, you're not patriotic? They'll say, well, we played the anthem before. That's patriotic. So it's a, it's, this is another whole issue all through society of the throwing the word racist, throwing the word sexist around way too easily. And we all now walk on eggshells with everything. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.